0: Really good to see you today. My goodness, I I was looking at my phone, you know, looking for the time to see how close we were to starting, and I noticed that it's uh, July 18th, which means that we're already better than halfway through July. It just continues to speed by. Ah, ah.
1: When Riley and I were buying a house, we weren't looking for a pool at all. But then when the houses that were in our budget had above-ground pools... Because that's what we can afford. We're like, oh, we might as well like, dive in. And it's taken two and a half years to figure out how to get a crystal clear pool and keep it. Awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome to look at. I've been in it zero times this year. And it's middle of July. i gotta, I got to get in the dumb pool.
0: Oh, my word. Yeah. Too yeah. much rain. Too it's, much being gone. The, the, i got to get in the pool. The time is passing. <laughs> I, I tell you what, though. We were at a party last night. And, um, boy, the, it couldn't have been nicer. I mean, for it being July, that cool breeze, um, it was just, it was an amazing, beautiful night. So, yeah, July is ticking away, and I just, you know, a little public service announcement to say, hey, don't let it, don't let it zip by too fast. Make sure, make sure you get, you get the break that you need. Make sure you get some quiet time during this season. Uh, I know that, you know, the trips are happening and all again this year, and that's all been a lot of fun, but. Just take advantage of this little bit different rhythm. We have a different rhythm in the summer. School's not there. Some different things that, that we get a little bit of extra time. And make sure you take, I think it's important to have that you know that weekly Sabbath rhythm where we get some time that's different than the rest of the week and then to have these, these annual times where we can just pull back and, and enjoy some quiet. So uh, really, really important to do that. So it's good to see you. And as you walked in today, you saw with your own eyes, the most important announcement of the day, and that is, would you please take your junk home? So, got a table, a table full of lost and found stuff from camp, and, and from winter, and from, you know, there winter coats out there. There's, there's even some with names on them, but as of right now, the Instapot and the Yeti, I think, are going to get stolen before they're taken by the... I, more people have looked at those two items, so... We, I, on the way out, I mean, we've slashed prices, okay? Everything's free. It's all free. So feel free to take your things. After making fun of Jared
1: last week, I know he's, he's not here this morning, or at least I saw he was camping, uh, but I'm pretty sure last week he marked the bottom of that Yeti, <laughs> Jay Brooks, in case nobody uh, decides to take it. Very so, good. Yeah. And,
0: and, and there's one item that's not laying on, on, the, on mm-hmm. the counter there and that, or on the table, and that is uh, one of the kids' wallets from Green Lake. Somebody left behind their, their wallet. Clearly, it doesn't have ID in it, so you'll want to go to the Welcome Center afterward and talk to them. I hear it's got $6,000 in it. so um, they, Had they, they were planning on visiting 6, the 000. country store. <laughs> 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 planning on having some fun, but anyway. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what's, what is the, the rhythm of, of students right now? What do you got, going?
1: Rhythm of students right now... On Sundays, we're doing 12 to 2, and we're going to do that for the next two weeks, um, and Refuge is at our normal time, 6.30 to 8.30, also for the next two weeks, uh, just to kind of be together, because I think coming out of the pandemic and everything, uh, that was the, the first thing that we enjoyed the most, was just being in the same room, just mm-hmm. just hanging out. So even though it's less structured, there's more fun just, just hanging out, That that's really what, uh, what we craved coming out, and... I don't know, this year, while crazy in many different ways, has brought so much good stuff that we just, we want to enjoy that together. Um, it's brought good experiences, it's, it's brought a lot of fun, and it's also, it's brought great kids. Like, I'm just looking at the front row. We've got Katie, JC, you know, I hesitate to say Jenna. <laughs> it's me she is who she is, but I mean, no, we get, we get, uh, we've had a lot, of, a lot of kids come through the door yeah. um, over the last year, and I think a, a Grace coming for the first time to, to Green Lake, and now she's a part of who we are as student life, and that is just, it's a really, really cool time to be at, at Revive and Refuge, so we're going to be together next two weeks before we take a short break um, for our leaders to, to get rested and ready for what we have set up for the fall.
0: Yeah, I, I I acknowledge that um, that same dynamic in other areas where I've seen as much as it's fun to get together, you know, behind doing something or whatever. The together has just been it's been beautiful yeah. to be able. To, I see more people just hanging out, enjoying each other's face, enjoying e- conversations. Well, Jenna's I, it, not going to enjoy it, my it, face It anymore. gave it gave <laughs> us a, an appreciation an appreciation for relationships that that I think are are going deeper, and that's been, that's yeah. been incredible. So yeah. summer is a little bit different uh, rhythm around here for us. One of the, one of the things that's really important to, to life for Southfield is journey groups. we love for you to get involved in that, that smaller group of some people where you get a chance to, to grow in relationship as well as uh, centered around the Word of God and, and learning through that. Uh, during the summer, the nature of our groups change a little bit. Uh, during June, our, our groups are primarily uh, serving-focused groups uh, to make sure that you know between camp and all the things that are going on, we just kind of align around that. And then, and then July is July is a little bit of a Sabbath. It's a little bit of a breather time. And, and, and we build that in very intentionally. Uh, a lot of times, when a group has been together for a long time, uh, they'll find that their that their attendance and participation will start to dwindle a little bit. And, and we found actually building in an intentional break has has created then some anticipation for we can't wait to get back together again. So, so as we start moving into August, uh, we'll start to see groups. Ramping up again, and, and I would just wanted to throw the offer out to you too as well. That you know, maybe you've come to a point that you're like, "Hey, you know, there's there's a group I've been thinking about offering. There's a study that I'd enjoy doing. Uh, all those things. If that if that's been in your mind, God's been placing that in your heart. Uh, talk to Kim at the Welcome Center today. We, we'd love to we'd love to see ways that we could engage you in in getting involved in leading a group. So, um, great opportunities coming for the fall. I was talking to. Uh, to one fellow last night about an idea he has. And I'm like, man, I want to do that group. It's going to be fun. So there are just some really, really good opportunities uh, coming up here very soon. Uh, we want to thank you, as always, for your continued faithfulness in giving. You've just been so amazing in the, in the transition from passing the plate passing the the basket to all the different ways to give electronically and everything else and and we're, we're grateful for your your faithful participation if at some point you're you know you're trying to make uh, the shift to you know I'm going to use the app or something like that and you can't figure out exactly what to do you can stop by the by the welcome center the hub out there and they, they'd be glad to walk you through uh, the pieces of how some of that works because you know it, it does get a little a little complicated from time to time so Um, one of the, one of the things that, that I've recognized the need for in my own life is a little bit of breathing time. It's been a, it's been a long year. I I will say it's been a really good year. I've, I've loved so much of what, what God has done, uh, this past year, uh, in our church, in me and in relationships. It's, you know, he's taken something that was unique, something that in many ways was a Uh, a tragic situation in our world and yet brought as he always does brought good out of that and so uh, i've said before it was not it was not the most difficult year for me of being a pastor but it was certainly the most complicated you're constantly taking in information and trying to make decisions and and keeping things flowing and and you know, going from four services to three services and all the all the decisions and all the shifts along the way. So so I'm gonna be actually taking a couple of weeks of not talking, which all of you will very much appreciate. I, I've I found in my own rhythms that that I know it's time for a break when I when I ask the question, okay, what's next? And all I hear is crickets. So the crickets have been doing a little chirping lately. That's because and you have turtles downstairs. That's true too. It's actual crickets. Yes. Yes. But uh, just some, some quiet time, quiet voice, I think will be helpful. And so and so for the next two weeks, you're going to be you're going to be teaching us. And I and I'm, I'm sorry. I I I, <laughs> I already I already got to hear it. I'm telling you what I, I love I love the teaching and I I love the direction. Um, I i I'm, you, you know I I tell you often I'm just incredibly grateful for you, uh, both in terms of you know being able to know you literally from your first breath. But um, but being able to partner with you in ministry, and uh, I was on the phone yesterday with uh, with Justin live. We were talking, and he, Justin was the the youth pastor uh, prior to Brian. And when when Justin moved on to the next place, um, you were fresh out of U of I, and and you know we asked you would you. Would you mind it was September? would you mind serving until christmas? would you would you serve for three months while we while we take a look and see who 's out there because we knew it was important to hire somebody get a, get a youth pastor in and and yeah even even I know it 's been a long winter pa- past, pastor <laughs> pastor math that yeah this is it 's gone on a little bit longer than that, and i, I just I, I love I, if i 'd have predicted you know I mean if I could have said um, how long would you like Brian to be around? How long do you think he'll be around? I, I would have said, you know, we want him for three months, but if he'd be around for a few years, that would be really great. And to have this many years later uh, is just, it's, it's, been, it's been incredible. And, you know, I remember sitting in an overseer meeting one time. Jim Van, Jim Van Eck was, was an overseer at that time. And I think uh, Vivian, Vivian was just barely into high school, and uh, I think Vincent might have been eighth grade or, or going into just, you know, just going into ninth. So I, I could remember. still beat them in but, a race. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, uh, and I remember Jim saying, well, you know, he's just got to stay long enough to get my kids through youth group. And And I remember when he said, "I'm going, "Yeah, dude, that not happening." And then Vivian graduated, and now this year Vincent graduated, and Vaughn's graduating in five years, so you got you so got
1: five years to break, Vaughn. good <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> you yeah, got
0: you got five cool. years, that's five cool. years to go, but um, just <laughs> really, really love what you've done with her group, and I think that you know people obviously love the size of what's going on with the group, the style, all those things. But I love, I love who our kids are. I, I love that um, you've created a culture and a climate where our kids just, they have, they have such willing, serving hearts. They're not looking for what's in it for me or what, you can, what can you do for me. I can't tell you how many times I'll have one of our kids walk up and ask me, how can I help you? What can I do to, in what way, they won't say, can I serve you? But that's what they're saying, you know. And I just, I love that you've created that culture. That's been an amazing thing. And creating a culture, that's, that's what leading is all about. It's not just about making sure the doors are open and the lights are on, but making sure that that spirit is there. So thank you for that. And I look forward to, to hearing what you're going to be teaching over the next couple of weeks. As we as we um, head into uh, the morning, we do want to start with communion. And um, and I, I thought it would be good to go back to just the, the classic passage on communion uh, found in First Corinthians chapter 11. We don't read this every time we do communion, but I think it's good to come back to these words from time to time and be reminded of, of why exactly we do this these are words that the first line says I pass along to you what I received from the Lord himself Paul is being very definitive on this he's saying you know Paul was not part of the the earthly ministry of Jesus but during that time after after his Damascus Road experience he spent some time in the physical presence of Jesus he learned directly from Jesus And it says, I passed on what I received from the Lord. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you drink it. For every time you eat and drink this bread, eat eat this bread and drink of this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. That's part of the reason, many years ago, that we made the decision to, to do communion every week, because every week we get the chance to declare the gospel truth, whether verbally or through symbol, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for your sins and mine. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before you eat the bread and drink the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. And in this, Paul is saying, take this very seriously. This isn't just cracker and juice time. It's not just a spiritual snack. But it's a time to examine ourselves and ask the question, where am I in my relationship with God? Is there some unconfessed sin that needs to be brought before him? Is there something, some area that I'm resisting his leadership in my life? And to make sure that 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 part of our heart is clear. And so, Lord, this morning as we approach communion in the quiet, as we approach it, with sincerity and with seriousness. I pray that we will have the openness, the softness of heart to confess our sins and to approach you realizing that any purity we bring to this table is not our own purity. It's the purity that only comes through Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Coffee is the absolute, bar none, best drink on planet Earth. If you disagree, you're wrong. <laughs> now, I, I truly do love everything about coffee. I love the smell. I love going to the store, walking through the aisle, and choosing which one smells the best and which one am I going to drink this week, because I drink about a bag a week. So I drink a lot of coffee, and I love good coffee, which is why I choose Dunkin' over Starbucks or any of those other stores, Okay if your coffee's good enough, it shouldn't need cream. It definitely shouldn't need sugar or anything else. Give me a good cup of black coffee like I have before me. I might throw an ice cube in it every now and then if it's too hot because, you know, I want to be able to taste things that week. Uh, but, But outside of that, there's nothing about coffee that I don't like. I love walking into Barnes & Noble and smelling, I mean, yeah, the, the books smell good, but books in combination with the coffee? Oh, man, I always go in intending, like, I'm going to find a new book to read. And then I sit down at the table, I drink the coffee, and I never go peruse the store. But, um, no, I, I absolutely love coffee. And that my addiction to coffee started in college. I'm a procrastinator. Okay, hi, I'm Brian, I'm a procrastinator. And um, I started studying for tests around midnight, even if it was at, I don't know, eight, nine in the morning. That's when I'd start. I'm like, uh-oh, it's real. We got to go. So I had to stay up late. I always had to stay up late. And coffee was my choice because it's a lot cheaper than Monster. There was one place when I was at JJC and then when I came home from Illinois after my sophomore year that I loved going to in No, not Starbucks. It wasn't there yet. Bean Encounters. Bean Encounters over in Minooka on Ridge Road was the spot. It was a weird combination. They served coffee and paninis, but still, the coffee was great. And we were just reminiscing about this uh, as a family the other night. Bean Encounters was the place. Like, you went there, you met, I got black coffee, everybody else got their foo drinks, okay? But still, I loved, I loved everything about Bean Encounters. So as I thought about what to speak on, I thought that I'd try to bring back Bean Encounters. No, not as a business model, because uh, it's gone. It's now Doc Rots. Doc Rots. is wonderful, by the way. I've probably eaten more buffalo chickens from Doc Rots than I had coffees at Bean Encounters at this point. But, so no, we're not bringing back uh, the, the business. We're going to talk about what it means to have a coffee bean encounter, both with other people and with God. Now, part of this inspiration came from the end of the school year. This past May, I'm getting ready. I cleaned up my area. I'm I'm ready to chalk it up. It was a long school year. We were in person the whole time. Um, So i you know, just doing my job, checking everything, making sure that everything is done. And so my last move on my way out the door was going to check my mailbox. And as I went to go check my mailbox, I was hoping there was nothing in it because I love just walking in, seeing, nope, okay, no mail, and moving on. But there was something in there. There was a book. A book called The Coffee Bean. The Coffee Bean is a great book. I read it in about 25 minutes, which I tried bragging about. And then Riley's like, wait, that's extra large print and there's pictures on every page. So (laughs) if you want, if you want, I mean, it's like 10 bucks on Amazon. It's awesome. It's a great, great little read. But The Coffee Bean, it was written by a man named Damon West. See, Damon West grew up in a Christian home in Texas. And he was a really good athlete. He became the quarterback at the University of North Texas during the 1990s. Uh, He went on from there to work on Congressional Hill, which then led him to an opportunity uh, to serve as a stockbroker for UBS, which is one of the biggest uh, stock companies in the entire world out of Switzerland. He had some great experiences. You could say that Damon West had reached the peak of the American dream. He was the star athlete making tons of money. But obviously, Damon West wrote a book, so it didn't all go well. Uh, See, Damon had taken his wealth and his fame to a bad place. He'd gotten into cocaine. Cocaine led to methamphetamines, and methamphetamines led to an addiction that then led him to run a burglary ring out of Dallas, Texas. Yes, he had an elaborate system set up where he had people going around robbing uptown Dallas apartments and houses, to take their stuff, sell it, to feed all of their, their meth addictions. He became known as the Uptown Burglar. And when he was caught, it was a big deal in Dallas. A big deal. Because they had stolen over a million dollars worth of merchandise. A lot of stuff had been taken un- unjustly. He knew that he was in for it. He knew, like, I mean, when, you, when you're a criminal and you get busted, it's not good, okay? But when you're a criminal and you have a name in the news... It's really not good. So he knew that he was in for it. So he pled guilty, and in that time, while he was awaiting sentencing, his mom gave him some tough love advice, and here's what she said. She said, "...debts in life demand to be paid, Damon West, and Texas just hit you with one heck of a bill. You did the things they convicted you of, and you'll pay your debt to the state, but you also owe your father and I a debt. When you go to prison..." You aren't joining one of those white hate gangs for protection. You're going to climb on God's back, and you're going to let him carry you through. He agreed, but I don't think he had any idea what he had actually agreed to. So while he, again, was awaiting his sentencing, which ended up being 65 years, which for a 30-something is a life sentence, he started asking other guys at the county jail what prison was like. Guys who had been there, what, what can I expect? Uh, is it really as bad as they show on TV? Am I going to survive? What do I have to watch out for? And they all gave him the same advice. You're going to have to join one of those white hate gangs for protection. <laughs> and he's like, well, guys, my mama said I can't. <laughs> um, luckily, in that county jail, there was a guy named Mr. Jackson. Mr. Jackson uh, was this old African-American man who, um, who had spent four or five spells in the prison system. And here he is back in jail, and, and Mr. Jackson was trying to turn his life Around and he, he said, West, I want to tell you what prison's like, but I don't want to tell you anything about my experiences there. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a pot of boiling water. And Damien West is a little confused, but he's like, All right, Mr. Jackson, go ahead, go on. He said, West, I'm going to put in three things in this pot of boiling water, and you're going to tell me what would happen to those three things. The first thing we're going to put in the pot of boiling water is a carrot. What happens, Wes, when we put a carrot into a pot of boiling water? Well, Damon, being a smart guy, said it becomes a soft-boiled carrot. It goes from hard to soft. It becomes mush. Mr. Jackson's like, that's exactly right. Some, for, for some guys, prison is an environment where they walk in all tough and strong. They act like they have it all together. Or they're so angry at the system for unjustly putting them there that they— they keep this hard exterior, but then prison breaks them down. It weakens them, and it makes them soft, just like that carrot becomes soft in the boiling water. And he said, West, let's take an egg, and let's put that in the boiling water. What happens to an egg when you put it into a pot of boiling water? West, being a smart guy, said, well, Mr. Jackson, when you put an egg into a pot of boiling water, it becomes a hard-boiled egg, and not hard to know. Jackson's like, Wes, that's exactly right. You see, some guys come into prison all soft and scared. They're terrified. They don't know what to expect. They've never been there. They don't know anyone who's been there. But then they get a hang of things. They start to know the systems. They start to grow comfortable with their situation. That prison environment, the regulations, the people, the guards, everything, they begin to harden the egg. The eggs are the people who come back time and time again because their environment has changed them. And then Mr. Jackson said, West, I got one more thing. So we got the carrot, we got the egg in there. What about a coffee bean? What happens when you put a coffee bean into a pot of boiling water, West? And not being a coffee drinker at the time, Mr. West said, I I don't know what does happen to a, a coffee bean in a pot of boiling water. And Ms. Jackson said, well, West, when you put a coffee bean into a pot of boiling water, it changes the environment. So the carrot goes in strong, comes out soft. The egg goes in soft, comes out hard. But the coffee bean changes the water entirely. See, when the coffee bean comes out of the water, we have to change the name of the water. We have to call it coffee. West, you need to be a coffee bean. Every experience that you have in prison, you need to have a smile on your face. Every person that you meet, you need to try and have a positive interaction. Everything that you do, you need to do with all your might, and you need to do it in a way that you haven't been doing it while you were living on the street coming uh, before you came to prison. You need to be the coffee bean. Now, that's a really great motivational speech. And in fact, Damon West took that advice and got out after seven years. So he's out... And he's sharing his story all around the country. He's talking to businesses, schools, football teams. Uh, Coach Dabo Sweeney had him in to talk to the Clemson football team several times. Um, Because it's a really good story. It's a great motivational speech. But I think there's something more. I think there's something spiritual to that story. So, over the next uh, little while here, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at those three things. We're going to look at the carrot. We're going to look at the egg. We're going to look at those two today. Next week, we're going to look at the coffee bean. So come back, okay? Uh, After all, if we look at how we are changed by Jesus, here's what we learn in Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to start with the carrot today. The Christian carrot, that is. See, the Christian carrot starts off solid. Starts off hard. It's solid. It's growing. It's vibrant in color. Yes, I could have cleaned this carrot so it was more vibrant for the people at home. But anyway, uh, it's vibrant in color. But then something makes the carrot feel unworthy. It could be a relationship that goes awry or an experience that didn't quite live up to expectations. The carrot might be too anxious to leave its comfort zone or it has fears driven by worldly pressures. It might even be allowing scars from its previous sinful past weaken that firm carrot into mush. In Mark chapter 5, there's a woman who's stricken with a terrible disease. She's done everything that she can to rid herself of it. She's spent every dime that she has, and she's done it all honorably to this point. Her circumstance, though, is starting to boil. She's seeing no way out. Her carrot is under threat of softening. At this time, chronologically speaking, Jesus is at the peak of his ministry. There are a lot of crowds gathered everywhere that he goes. He had just healed someone of demon possession, and he was actually on his way to heal uh, another friend's daughter. The crowd was so big, wherever Jesus went, that they'd literally be pressing him in on all sides. Absolute COVID nightmare, okay? If we were still in the peak of that, I mean, just jammed in. Everybody wanted to see Jesus touch him, be around him. And this woman, who's stricken with this disease— was in the crowd as Jesus walked from one miracle to the next. Let's read the account from Mark chapter 5. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay for them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around and asked the crowd, Who touched me? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing in on you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. The frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell on her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. He said to her, daughter, Your faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. James wrote in, two, in James 2.26 that faith apart from works is dead. All throughout the Bible, we see real-life change and real-life transformation happen when people act on their faith in Jesus. Faith without action is a dead faith. We looked at that when we went through the James series a few winters back. And fortunately, in that passage, we see what it looks like to act on faith in Jesus. Our story demonstrates a faith that is vibrant and active and alive. We don't know What the woman actually had, other than it was a disease that literally had her with, left her with no hope at the end of her rope in every imaginable way. Why was she at the end of her rope? Not just because the disease was terrible, but at the time Jewish law demanded that she be labeled unclean. If she was to go anywhere, she had to tell people that she had this disease, essentially making herself an outcast. Now we don't know this for a fact, but Based on traditions, we can make some assumptions about this woman. We know that she was not allowed to enter the temple, but she was also probably unmarried. Due to her disease, she probably had no children, which means she was probably living alone. She was secluded from everyone. No friends, no family, just herself, her disease, and her feeling of utter hopelessness. The carrot is in dangerous risk of softening. Because hopelessness is magnified in our aloneness. This woman was truly alone. However, one day she heard about Jesus. She placed all of her faith in him and him alone. The kind of biblical faith that we're called to have. What did that faith do? It moved her to do something. Because fervent biblical faith moves us to action we all know the saying that you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? The carrot is the epitome of the saying. The carrot wants to do well. It'll say all the right things, but then it allows its circumstances, the boiling pot of water, to turn it to mush. Our culture is a culture satisfied with seeing and hearing, but not actually doing anything. It lacks motive. It lacks purpose. Download Twitter if you need to verify my statement. There are a lot of keyboard warriors out there with a lot of complaints, but no solutions. They won't do anything about the problems that they're griping about. But hey, at least they're heard and they can see and hear whatever the, what other people are saying. In verse 27, we read that the woman heard about Jesus and was moved. She didn't just hear. She heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe more than likely she had already heard stories of how he had healed people and accomplished all kinds of miracles but the woman did more than just hear about it she acted in faith she got up and she did something this is what faith that is alive does it moves us into action because the woman was considered unclean the law declared that anything and any one that she touched would also be declared unclean as well being in the crowd She was risking it all. Every person, everything that she touched or bumped into would have also become unclean. This action is a radical move of faith on her part. But if the faith that we claim to possess does not lead us to similar radical action, then our faith is as good as a skydiver who has a parachute on the back but never opens it. Jesus is looking for people who will move, who will act, who will come alive in their faith and not turn to mush when their situation becomes desperate or just changes in a way that they don't like. Fervent biblical faith also maintains the mission. One of the amazing things about faith is what matters most is not the size of the faith. The Bible says that the size of our faith can be the size of a mustard seed. If I was holding a mustard seed, it would look like this because you wouldn't be able to see it, okay? So just imagine I have mustard seed in my fingers, okay? It's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith. Desperate for healing, the woman literally did what was forbidden. She reached out, and she touched Jesus. She reached out and touched in faith. Her faith was focused on him, and him alone. The woman knows that Jesus is the one who can heal, and the result is a faith that is centered on him. Verse 28 tells us that she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Hear the confidence that she has there. There's certainty that she will be healed. After all, everything else has failed, she could have turned to Mush and said, Jesus is just another option that's not going to work. But no, she stayed firm. She knows that Jesus is powerful enough to heal her. And even if the only thing she touches is his clothing, She will get better. Notice that even in the midst of all of her suffering, the woman was still able to keep all of her faith focus on Jesus. In other words, if your situation or your circumstance, even if it is dark, does not, cannot, and will not have the last word, if you choose to come alive in your faith, how often do we actually exercise our faith in that way? It's a question we should be asking all the time. Third, a fervent biblical faith makes things happen. The result of her faith was instant healing. She knew it, and she felt it. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. There's no doubt that she's filled with awe and joy at the situation. But what a great picture this is of the spiritual healing that occurs when we place our faith in God, and the grace of God floods our soul with his mercy and his forgiveness. By the way, these results aren't always physical. The miracle here is not really that she was solved of her disease, but that she was saved for eternity. That is something that we should be cheering for and excited for and living for every day of our lives. The saving of lost souls. I got one last thing here that a fervent biblical faith does. Uh, and since I'm preaching... Alliteration is important. You can see the three M's there. But there's not a synonym, as far as I know, maybe you're smarter than me, uh, but there's not a synonym for the word prompt that starts with M. So, fervent biblical faith prompts a response from Jesus. Don't go looking in the dictionary. It's not there. I made it up. Okay. Fervent biblical faith prompts a response from Jesus. Jesus' response to the woman was immediate. Even with the crowd pressed in on him, he knew that someone had acted on their faith in him. Verse 30, Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? When our faith comes alive, the response from Jesus is immediate. Jesus moves in and through those who put their faith into action. Jesus has taken her impurities and her uncleanliness, and he's given her his holiness and his righteousness and his cleanliness. The greatest part of the passage are the words that follow in verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. The woman had every right and every reason, according to the world, to give up to let her disease take her and just be done. In other words, to become a boiled carrot. But instead, when she heard about Jesus, she acted. Her faith came alive and she maintained the mission of getting to Jesus. Because of that, she was never the same because Jesus responds to faith. When you act in faith and your faith comes alive, it always demonstrates and manifests grace, mercy, and glory of God and the work of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's shift gears. Let's look at the egg. Let's look at the egg. The Christian egg starts with a softened heart. They accept Jesus. They begin walking with him, but then their environment does the opposite of what it does to the carrot. It hardens them. We live in a world where distractions exist in all different shapes and sizes and mediums, from social media to sports to politics, you name it, the world is aching for our attention and focus. It's all about ratings. It's all about likes. Everybody wants your attention. As a result of that, our mission, our pursuit of Christ-likeness is not only a noble pursuit, it's tough to do, but it's also one that is absolutely essential. Turning back to the Bible, Paul wrote Philippians during his two-year imprisonment in Rome. Despite being in prison, Paul writes this letter that is joy-filled to his fellow Christians in Philippi, with one of the major themes being that, Christ-likeness. Paul, is cons- Paul considered Christ-likeness to be the most defining element of spiritual growth and one of his greatest passions. Here's what he has to say. Philippians 3:12 to14. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. When we encounter Jesus and he brings us to new life, the next step is to always, fervently, passionately pursue being like him, Christ-likeness. Like Paul demonstrates, a passion for Jesus is the same as a pursuit of Jesus. It leads to a pursuit of Jesus. In 2008, I graduated from Minooka High School, and at that time, I was a very um, elite-minded but average runner. Okay, I, I loved running and everything about it, and I dreamt of of being one of the greats. Although I was nowhere close to it. Okay, especially looking at the times kids are running today makes me sick. Okay, they're so fast. In fact, we have uh, we have a lot of fast kids in our church. Vincent Vanek ran the national four by eight, and they finished third. Like that's incredible at the national track meet, finishing third. It's amazing. Um, but. Going back, and when when I was in Florida, when Vincent was running that race out in Oregon, and, and it got me thinking. I wanted to, I was obviously watching, I wanted to keep track of what he was doing, but that also led me back to look at my times, and compare them to what fast runners do. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of diving through all these stories, and at the same time, I had ESPN Classics on. It's raining outside, so I'm not totally wasting my time in Florida, okay? ESPN Classics is running last year's NCAA National Cross Country and Track Championships consecutively. So I'm watching this, and they brought up a story of a girl from 2008 who's running for the University of Minnesota. Her name is Heather Dornadin. Heather Dornadin was an elite track athlete. During the indoor season, they run on a short track, so it's not as big as the outdoor one. Um, and the, the length of the races are sometimes a little messy, especially at the collegiate level. So she's running the 600-meter race for the University of Minnesota. She was considered the favorite. Um, so they knew, like, as they get to the final lap, Heather Dornigan, Dornigan, Dornadin was going to take off. She was going to win this race. But as they cross the line to begin the last lap of this 600 meter race, which is just more like it's a lap and a half outside for you to picture, as they're going into the final lap, the second place runner's shoe clips Heather's shoe. And Heather goes down. And she goes down hard. As you can see there, that does not look comfortable. When you're running a race, you should never be in the push up position, okay? <laughs> so she's down. And again, being the favorite, the favorite mentality is I'm better, I'm best. I'm just, I should be given this win. But no, here she is on the ground as the runners take off 50, 70 meters ahead of her. There's no time left in this race. Heather could have become hardened. She could have given up and said, I tripped, I fell, whatever. But it's the national championship. So what does she do? She gets up and she chases down the pack. We don't have time to watch it because it's like just over two minutes, okay? Go home, watch. Heather Dornadin, Dornadin 2008 Minnesota Fall, okay? It'll, it'll pop up on YouTube. It's a great thing to watch. She pursues them down the back stretch, and you can hear the announcers like, Dornadin's staying in this thing. Oh, my. She's going to overtake the, four, the third place. She's going to overtake second. She's got a chance to win this thing. And at the very last moment, she passes one of her teammates to win the race. After getting knocked down, falling down, 50 meters behind in the last lap, she gets up, and she's the one who wins. The hilarious thing is at the end, the other three runners are dead. They're on the ground, they're heeled over, they're pumping. She's just like, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's why I bring up the story. When asked how she was able to accomplish what she did, she said, the positive vision of what I was hoping to accomplish in that race was stronger than the adversity that I faced. Heather relentlessly and passionately pursued her goal. She was focused not on what happened, but what laid in front of her the rest of the race. And she kept her eye on the prize, the finish line, the win. Paul used the analogy of a runner at the end of that passage to illustrate what our pursuit of Jesus should look like. Just before the passage, in verse 8, he writes this, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I can gain Christ. It's been said that whatever brings you the most satisfaction in life is what you will pursue the most. And if we're to love Jesus more than anything in the world, then we should continue to pursue him relentlessly and try to be like him passionately. The Christian egg is going to start by acknowledging that yeah, that makes sense. That's what I want to do. But then their words stop matching their actions. The Christian egg will say their pursuit of Christ-likeness is most important, but then the place where they're serving stops, I don't know, feeling the way that it once did. So they quit. The egg allowed the environment to change the egg, and it hardened. The Christian egg will say, I'm ready to be a runny yoke. I want to serve and share Jesus all over the world. But then someone else receives credit for their work. And they harden. I'll never do that again. I can't trust that person, ever. They harden. The Christian egg says, I want to follow Jesus, but then can't follow simple instructions from a spouse, a boss. Or a ministry leader, because, well, the egg knows better. The egg has a better way. That's the egg hardening. Newsflash, eggs. Only Jesus' way is better. What language does Paul use to describe fighting against egg hardening? First, he says, keep pressing on. Press on. Keep going. Never give up. Push. What do all these things have in common? They're all shouts of commitment and determination. As followers of Christ Jesus, our pursuit to Christlikeness must take center stage and reign over everything and every area of our lives. There are no pit stops when it comes to racing after Jesus. We must all passionately and endlessly pursue Christ. Paul began this verse by making it absolutely clear that he wasn't there. Regarding Christlikeness. we're far from where we need to be, especially him. He states this in verse 12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. So Paul is saying, listen, all of you who are listening to me and the people I'm speaking to and, and all the people who want to be like me, no, 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 no. Don't do that because I'm not there yet. I want to be like Jesus. And what exactly hasn't he reached? Well, if we go back to verses 10 and 11, we learn. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience what? The resurrection from the dead. Paul knows the promise that awaits hope in Christ, all who hope in Christ, the resurrection from the dead. And he realized that he wasn't there yet. He's still alive. So he says, I haven't already achieved this. But in the meantime, he would do all that he could to press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I like looking at other versions because sometimes it puts things into perspective for me or sometimes you know, it just hits you in a different way. So the Holman Christian Standard version of the Bible says Philippians 3.12 this way, I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Jesus. Man, we should all possess a spiritual longing for greater spiritual maturity and a stronger relationship with Jesus with a longing so passionate that we stop at nothing to be conformed into not the image of what we want or what we think, but the image of Jesus, the image of our creator. Notice how Paul's effort is directly being tied to being taken hold of by Christ. When you turn your life over to him, he literally takes a hold of you. And any motion, any move that's not like that, you're like a little kid who's trying to get out. We're, we did a camp review on Friday night. And we had a lot of fun talking about the, the kindergartners. Who, it's a long day for the kindergartners at camp. And when they didn't get their way or something didn't go right, some of them did the stiff board. Or, you, you know, they, like you try and move them or try and get them to do something. And other, others went limp noodle, okay? When we put our passion first, when we put our thoughts, our desires first, and Jesus is holding us because we've already come into that relationship with him, that's what we're doing. We're like a little child going stiff as a board because we don't want to do what Jesus has. We're going limp noodle, making Jesus drag us along. No, we need to have passion to be taken hold of by Christ and stay in that grasp. Essentially, what naturally flows, or I'm sorry, follows in new life in Jesus is a desire to know him and be like him more and more and more and more and more. You cannot become more like Jesus if you stop right where you're at in your walk and say, I'm good here. I I'm pretty good. No. We must keep looking forward. Philippians 3.13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I haven't achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past. In almost every instance where a Christian desires to do better and know Jesus at a deeper level, there's always going to be a temptation to look back. We're always going to want to look back either at the highlight reel of all the great things we've done or at all the bad things at the evidence of our wickedness at the evidence of our assumed worthlessness also known as egg hardening neither of us will or neither of those will do us any good have you ever tried running and looking over your shoulder i know that there are some great runners who can do that Uh, Steve Prefontaine way back in the 1970s when he's running his races he could look back and like he knew I've got a full lap on these guys so I'm just looking back for the fun. Uh, When I was in eighth grade I remember my first experience in Minooka was actually as a member of the Washington junior high track team or uh, cross country team. We came to run at the newly built Minooka junior high and they had a runner named Jim Daly who was at the time the fastest kid I've ever seen and Jim sprinted out. He knew that he was going to win the race. There's like 150 kids in this race. He knew he was going to win. So he sprinted out in front, literally turned around, looked at us all, waved, and then won the race by like a half mile. Kid was amazing, okay? So unless you're that far ahead of everyone, you shouldn't be looking back. And I promise you, in our pursuit of Christ, no one, no one is that far ahead. No one should be looking back. In fact, when you look back, the tendency is to drift Never look back when you're running in the street, people. Keep your eyes forward. Keep running in a straight path and hope that the cars do too. Okay. But it'll looking back allows you to see what's behind you, but it'll never allow you to run at your full potential. We must do our best to not linger on every failure or every mess up, or hold our past in too high of esteem. The good things that we've done or the way that things used to be. Instead, we should be looking forward, wholeheartedly and completely trusting. The saving grace of Christ and the promise that lies ahead. The verse concludes, and looking forward to what lies ahead. The English Standard Version puts it this way straining forward to what lies ahead. The word strain denotes effort and exhortation and exasperation. This is definitely what Christ is calling us to do. Jesus calls us to exert ourselves in such a way that we give everything, we should be drained with how much we give. Every effort must be made in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. If you desire to grow in your relationship with Jesus, we must be resolved to do that, to give everything. We must be careful, however, not to confuse effort with earning. And Francis Chan puts that this way. Earning is not a good word for Christians because we can't earn any acceptance before God. Effort, though, is a good word for those who have already Come to know and understand that they have been made new creations in Christ. In that same vein, we must keep Jesus first. Not us, not Brian, not Dennis, not anybody. We must keep Jesus first. Athletes sacrifice and work hard for their goal because they know that they've been called and challenged to pursue that goal. As children of God, our challenge, our goal in life is being more like Christ. That is what we were pressing on towards. Philippians 3, 14. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. The goal is to live a life that is a reflection and a perfect representation of Jesus right here, right now, in every way, in every area. Paul makes it clear that the end goal of Christlikeness is the prize, heaven. But the call is salvation. Every believer has experienced God's grace and mercy. Everyone who's entered into that relationship has that. And it's offered to everyone who hasn't accepted it yet. It's that grace and mercy that fuels us to seek after Christ with every breath that we take. And this passage isn't exclusive to Paul. It's not exclusive to the people in Philippi who he was writing to. No, it's something that we can experience right here and right now because Jesus is the one in which we find all of our meaning, our purpose, and our greatest satisfaction. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for Southfield, and I pray for the big church, the big C church, that you would bring our hearts a burning desire, a desperate need to passionately pursue you all that we have. When we get knocked down like Heather Dornadin on the track, don't let us harden or soften. Help us to get up and chase down the prize. Help us to rise to the call that you've given to us. Help us to run our race. And as we run, let us represent Jesus in everything that we do. Not softening like the carrot, not hardening like the egg, but living as you did, Jesus, here on earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'll count the joy come every battle, because I know that's where you'll be. I'll count the joy come every battle, because I know that's where you'll be.
0: It was not long ago that the kids and adults that were involved in Quest got a chance to see some of these Bible stories reenacted, to see uh, Paul and Silas, who had been beaten, I mean, just absolutely ridiculed, and they're chained in in a horrible prison, singing praises to God at midnight, joy despite their circumstances, or three guys who are told, bow now or die. And they said, God will save us, maybe, (laughs) and maybe not but we will not bow, only to have a fourth man in the furnace. Absolutely incredible to be able to see those again and realize these are people who did not let their climate, their culture, their circumstances change them. They, they stood strong with God. They, they were the coffee bean, which I can't wait to hear about next week. I love, I love those two analogies. And how much is that like the teaching of Jesus? He's walking along. Here's a lily. Think about this. Or, or look at this dirt over here. This is what this is like. You won't look at a carrot the same way for the next several weeks, I promise you. Every time you go to eat a hard-boiled egg, it's going to cause you to think. It's going to cause you to think about what are your circumstances doing to you? Are your circumstances causing you to soften, though you thought you'd stand firm, or or maybe you had that heart that was soft for God, but over time, you feel a hardening taking place? It doesn't have to be that way. You can make a different choice. So, Father God in heaven, our prayer today is that you will awaken us to the ways in which our circumstances and surroundings, our our culture and environment have slowly but surely shifted us into someone that we don't desire to be and that you want us to, to change from being. You long for something more, that we will infuse our world with the flavor of Jesus. Not be changed by our world, but be world transformers. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Next week, we'll have a new church name, by the way, Bean Encounters. I like it. It works.